Our scripture reading this morning, 1 Timothy 6, verses 2 through 10. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and arguments that result in envy, quarreling, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means of financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the face and pierced themselves with many griefs. Good morning. If you haven't yet, please turn there where Armin just invited us to turn in 1 Timothy. We're moving through um, a series that I think it would be helpful for every church to, to move through. Um, I'm reminded of it this week when uh, one of Tina's relatives called her from another state and asked her for help. She wants to go back to church, but she has no idea where to begin. There's churches everywhere. What's a good church to go to? Uh, would you be able to answer that question? A relative calls you. They live in California or something. And they say, hey, I'm looking for a good church. Where do I go? Do you point them to a big church? Do you point them to a church? Uh, are you looking for a certain number of people? Uh, do you ask them to drive by and see how big the parking lot is? What, what are you looking for in a healthy church? You want to point someone toward a church that's going to help them grow. What are you looking for? Well, this series is it's called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. It's based on this book uh, by Mark Dever. Um, it's not a very big book, and this is the expanded edition. I have another copy that's probably this thin. You can grab that one if you like. It's just basic, and it walks you through these marks. These aren't the only nine marks. Uh, last week, we printed off bookmarks for you uh, with the nine marks printed. I think there's still a couple left in the back if you haven't picked these up. Um, so you can see where we're going. Last week, we talked about preaching, and this week, we're going to talk about biblical theology. Um, and it sounds maybe a little stuffy, but we're going to see how important and crucial these things are for the life and health of a church. I didn't pick this series because I think we're weak in all these areas, and we have to suddenly do something about it, but I picked them because I think wherever a church is, we, these are the things that we need to revisit, uh, think about, concentrate on, and make sure that we are a healthy church. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, many of us, if we had to write down our own nine marks or ten marks or whatever, 
would maybe come up with different lists. I would hope that many of these that we have in front of us, ahead of us these next few weeks, would be on most of our list, that we would see the importance of these things um, as we look through your word to find out what you want in a church rather than Googling what should be in a church. We ask that you would show us from your word what a healthy church looks like so we can continue to strive for that and that when people ask us, we can point them in the direction of what a healthy church looks like so they can grow. And we pray that you would be with us this morning and teach us from your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every Christian, every Christian is a theologian. You may not feel like a theologian. You may not feel like, I don't have a degree in theology. I haven't read any systematic theology books. I don't know Greek. It doesn't matter. If, you, if you're a believer, you, you're a theologian. You believe something about God. Theology is a, a study of what God reveals about himself. And so if you answer the questions, uh, questions like, who is Jesus? Whatever your answer is, that's your theology. How can you be saved? Saved from what? How do you know what God wants? Who are you? What is life? This girl that I met at Moody, I asked her how things are going, and she said she's quitting. I asked her why. And she said, I don't know. Just all this theology stuff is not for me. I just want to know Jesus. And I get what she's saying. Moody is not for everyone. I'm not calling everyone here to sign up and go to seminary and and get a Bible degree or something like that. But what she was saying sounded really close to me. Like, I don't want to get lost in all of the studying all the verses and, and trying to really understand and put them together and try to do any kind of study of a system and, and understand. I just want to love Jesus. Right? I told her, I, I, I just want you to be careful that you know, knowing Jesus is theology. It may not be what you're hearing in a classroom with professors, but pushing after Jesus is commensurate with some level of understanding who God is. So I think the most basic question is, what is God like? All of us would have an answer to that. And maybe some of us would have different answers. We'd begin with love, or someone would begin with wrath, or someone would begin with creation, or someone would begin with, he's coming soon. And, uh, but we, we, when we answer what God is like, that's theology. And so we need sound teaching, we need biblical theology, so we can understand what God reveals about himself So we can worship according to that. We don't want to worship according to what's been a tradition. We don't want to worship according to what people say God is like or what we would like to think God is like. We want to worship God according to what he says he's like. And then we'll know our worship is genuine. In his book, Mark Dever wrote about a confrontation that he had with a guy at a doctoral seminar. And Mark Dever had made a statement about God. And he calls him Bill. Bill responded politely but firmly. He said he'd like to think of God a little bit differently. For several minutes, Bill painted a picture for us, for them, of a friendly deity. He liked to think of God as being wise but not meddling, compassionate but never overpowering, ever so resourceful but never interrupting. This, he said, this is how I like to think about God. 
And Mark Dever said his reply was maybe a little bit sharper than it should have been, but he said, thank you, Bill, for telling us so much about yourself. But we're concerned to know what God is really like, not simply about our own desires. For you and I to get at what God is like, we have to wrestle with what He has revealed about Himself in Scripture. It's not good enough to go off of grandma's stories. It's not good enough to go off of um, literature, preaching that you hear without, without getting into God's Word. And so... I want to do that this morning briefly. I want to look at this passage in 1 Timothy 6. I think it's directly relevant to to this mark of health in a church. And look at the end of verse 2, where Paul says, Teach and urge these things. Teach and urge these things. You ever wonder why I preach something, and then I blog it, and then I have the Bible study or the small group leaders have you guys talk about it, and then when we get together in prayer meetings, we pray about it. And then when we get together in our membership meetings, we talk about it some more. It's because he says, teach and urge. Teach and urge. It's not enough to go, here's the teaching, guys. See you later. But to urge it. This is important. And so this morning as I prepared this sermon on biblical theology, I thought to myself, boy, I don't know if I, if I weren't going through the series, I probably wouldn't have picked to do a sermon on biblical theology. I'm going to get people falling asleep. I'm going to get people looking at the ceiling. What is biblical theology? That's boring. I want to know about my finances. I want to know how to make my marriage better. And I feel for that. And we do preach about those things. But all those things to be addressed have to be built on a foundation. And Timothy's saying, don't lose this foundation, Timothy. So what is he talking about? He just finished talking about relationship between masters and slaves. He talked about uh, qualifications for deacons. He talked about uh, how to run a church, how to conduct order in a church. He talked about marriages, husbands and wives. But I think to get at what he means by teach these things, you look at verse 3. It says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up. So he's saying, teach these things. If anyone teaches something different, different than what? Different than doctrine, that agrees with the sound words of Jesus and anything different than teaching that accords with godliness. Paul is saying, Jesus passed on to us apostles a set of teaching. We're writing it down and passing it on to you guys so you can teach this in the churches. Teach this. Urge this. Anything different from this is wrong. And so when people say, well, everybody has a different interpretation of the Bible anyway, so it's a waste of time. No, it's not a waste of time. There are core truths that are so clear in Scripture that it's obvious what God is revealing about Himself. And He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, you and I can't recognize a different doctrine if we don't know what doctrine is. And I think we have to stop with the mentality that doctrine is for the pastor. Doctrine is for the seminarians. Doctrine is for the professors who teach theology. No, doctrine is for you. My job is to teach you doctrine. My job isn't to just go study doctrine so you can feel comfortable that your pastor knows about doctrine. My job is to equip you as the saints to teach and urge these things to you, not to go meet with pastors in some conference while we talk about theology and important things so we can get it off our chest and then come back in the pulpit and just talk fluff. No, doctrine is to be urged and to be taught here. 
And so I think the challenge is for you to be able to tell what's good doctrine and what's bad doctrine. If I'm on vacation and a guest speaker comes and they teach something wacky, I don't want to have to listen to the tape. I want to know before I get to that recording, hey, this guy was not preaching something good. There was something different because you guys understand biblical theology. And so he says there's sound teaching, there's right doctrine, there's biblical theology, and then there's bad teaching, there's wrong doctrine, there's bad theology. And why are these things the mark of a healthy church? Why is this important? Now, what Paul's going to do is he's going to give a specific example to talk about why this broad point is necessary. The broad point is we need to understand right doctrine. Well, what happens if you don't have right doctrine? He's going to give a specific example of what can happen when doctrine is thrown out the window. Look what he talks about in verse 5. Well, let's back it up to verse 4. He's puffed up. Someone who teaches a false doctrine is puffed up with conceit, understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So here's one example. I mean, he, he meant there's going to be dissensions, arguments, controversy. And one of the things, the subversive ideas behind all those quarrels and fights is a bad doctrine. One of those bad doctrines is that godliness is a means for gain. I know some of you thinking like, Pastor, you really, you, you already told us prosperity theology is wrong. We know it already. You know, can we switch topics? I wasn't even going to go there. I just wanted to look at these first couple verses about teach and urge these things. And as I'm unraveling it, Paul takes us there. And it dawned on me, prosperity theology is not new. It's an example that Paul plucked out to give to Timothy way back when he wrote this letter. Say, look, here's some of the stuff that's going to come out when theology is wrong. This prosperity stuff. And I get people come up to me like, um, Pastor, I missed church last week, but I watched this guy on TV. And I go, ah. Oh, watch that guy. Why? He's really nice. And he smiles a lot. And This is why. Because there's not the doctrine, the right doctrine underneath the stuff that's being taught. And so, prosperity, the health and wealth is an example that Paul pulls out. Look what he says in the next couple of verses. Verse 6. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. So Paul is saying that there's a godliness with greed that, that pursues godliness so that they can gain greatly. Money, wealth, health, healing, whatever it is. Cars, bigger house. They, pers- they pursue godliness so they can get those things. Then he says, but there's a real godliness. And there's a different kind of great game. And it's godliness with contentment. It's a godliness that doesn't push after those things because you're content. It's a godliness that doesn't push after a second car because you're content with the first car. It's a godliness that doesn't put money in an offering basket expecting that God would give you triple that because you're content with what you have left over after you put that money in the basket. So there's a godliness that doesn't push after material gain. He's saying great gain is when you're content. Well, that doesn't make sense. How am I going to gain greatly if I'm content with this already? Because he's not talking about material gain. He's talking about something else. 
True godliness, true righteousness, true worship, true pursuit of God is not pursuing God so you can get something else. That's idolatry. Because God is a means towards something else that you worship. But when the buck stops at God and you just worship God, you're content with whatever He has given you. And so there's a quote-unquote godliness that desires great gain. And then there's the real godliness that the, the gain of it, the great aspect of it is contentment. And in our society, I think it's harder and harder to be content. And so with that question that we started off with, what is God like? Paul gives an example. God is a God who does not want you to desire great gain. This is an example. He's saying this is an example, Timothy, of something you should preach. Because this is an example of something that infects the church. The prosperity idea. So what is God like? Our theology, our understanding of God. By the way, the definition of theology is on the front of your bulletin. The study of God, who He is, how He relates to the world. What is God like? He's a God that does not want you to desire great gain, materially. He's a God who wants you to be content. And so we worship God that way, based on that theology. Someone who preaches something else, call this number in the bottom of my screen so you can give, and then God will shower money on you. Don't call that number. Because that's a different godliness. It's a false doctrine. It's exactly the opposite of what Paul taught. And they taught those things in their day. They teach those things in our day. I just decided to pluck one example of a pastor who's uh, famous worldwide and you can catch him on TV. And his name is Creflo Dollar. That's his legal name. I don't know. Did he change his name to Dollar? I don't know. That's his last name, Dollar. Pastor Dollar. He's a well-known proponent of prosperity theology. He's been criticized for his lavish lifestyle. Supposedly, according to one article, he's got two Rolls Royces, a private jet, a million-dollar home in Atlanta, and then a two-and-a-half-million-dollar home in Manhattan. Is it wrong to have things? No. But he's got those things because he teaches his people to give so they can get all the while as they give, he gets. Because of that, in November 6th of 2007, Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa announced an investigation of several ministries. You'd probably recognize all the names if I gave them, but he's one of them. An investigation by the United States Senate Committee on Finance. Grassley asked for financial information to the committee to determine whether Dollar made any personal profit for financial contributions. So give money to the church. Okay, is, is Creflo Dollar getting taken from that? That's the investigation. Half of those ministries that were inquired, they, gave, they, they showed all the paperwork. But Creflo was one of the three that decided not to. In a letter, uh, well, he, he responded by saying that only the IRS has the right to investigate, so it's kind of a legal loophole he's doing. This is all published. This is all posted on his website, USA Today. In a letter of complaint to the Senate, this is on Creflo Dollar's website, he wrote in an obvious attempt to explain why he, as a pastor, should be so rich. Quote, we know, he's writing to the senators, we know that God wants us to be rich spiritually, physically, and financially. He then quotes a string of verses taken out of context, obviously, including Genesis 13:2, And Abraham was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. 
These are the letters of the senators. Then he closes that paragraph with, quote, God wants us to succeed, not to want. After all, we're his children. Being spiritually, physically, and financially healthy is an outward sign of God's favor. And we celebrate that blessing. I wonder if we're not supposed to be in want, like he says, then why are the members of his congregation so desirous for gain? Want is the exact commodity that gets him to get people to give. He knows they want. He knows they're desirous. Why are they desirous? Because they don't have it. They don't have his Rolls Royce. They don't have his mansions. But you can get it too. Just keep giving to me. Well, if God doesn't want us to want, why do you keep inciting want in your people? Want and desire for gain is the opposite of contentedness. Paul's saying the opposite is what God wants for us. He's not saying God wants poverty for us. He's saying God wants us to not pursue things like we've got to have. Because want and desire for gain is a dark hole spiraling ever downward and increasing in want and desire. It never ends. Two Rolls Royces are going to have to be three. It's going to have to be four. And when the new model comes out, a new model. The mansion is not going to be big enough. Now you want an estate. This is the trap of mixing gain with godliness. And he explains it in verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So when somebody tells you, but Jesus said, if you give, it will be given to you. That's not Jesus saying pursue riches because it would contradict this verse. If you desire to be rich, you fall into a snare. Jesus never wanted you to give so you can get rich. It subverts the kingdom and sets up a snare. Verse 10 says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs or pierced themselves with many griefs. You know, if I visit a woman who's lost her job and they've got three kids, I'm making this up. The husband was recently disabled, so he can't work. They don't know how they're going to pay the bills. They don't know how they're going to get their next meal. And I go and visit them and they ask me, what is God like? Do I tell them, God is a God that wants you to repent. He wants you to be rich. So obviously you're disobeying. Drop on your knees right now and repent for being poor. Or do I say, God wants you to use situations like this to cultivate a desperation for Him. I don't know why your husband got disabled. I don't know why you lost your job. I don't know why food is so difficult to get in a country that's so rich of food. But I know that God wants to use difficult circumstances for you to desire Him and worship Him with desperation. That's biblical theology. What is God like? What do we tell others about what God is like? Paul is using a specific example to prove his big point. The big point is stop preaching, is not pro, stop preaching prosperity gospel. The big point 
is that right doctrine, biblical theology is to be taught and urged in the church so we can understand what God reveals about himself and worship that God. So we can understand what God reveals about himself in scripture so we can worship God according to that and not according to false teachings, not according to our feelings, not according to what we think we would like to think God was. What I love reading about the Bible straight through is it forces me to read the scriptures that I wouldn't turn to if I were to flip through and decide on a passage to read. I would go to John 3.16. I would go to you know some epistles. I would go to some nice psalms. But I wouldn't go to the ones that really reveal God's wrath against sin. That makes me uncomfortable. I don't read that. But biblical theology wants to take the whole counsel of scripture and allow scripture to paint a portrait of God instead of Drawing him on our own canvas. So biblical theology is important for a church. It marks the health of a church. And one of the first things Tina did when she started looking for churches for her uh, relative is to click on the website of the church and look to see if they say something about what we believe. And click on that. Because that matters. So I think the challenge, as I wrap up, is that the onus is on each and every one of us to dig, to learn, to understand our faith. And obviously that begins with reading the book. I mean, it begins with reading the book. But also I think it would help to get tools, books that were written about the book. And I just want to make one recommendation. If you look in your bulletin underneath the announcements, I think there's a recommendation of a couple books. And the first one is the one I just showed you, Mark Dever's Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. But then this one... I was given a long time ago. I wasn't given. I had to buy my poor self. I had to buy this huge book. And uh, it was for one of the theology classes. But it's by James Montgomery Boyce. It's called Foundations of the Christian Faith. And then in smaller font, it says, A Comprehensive and Readable Theology. I mean, we look at this thing, we're like, Oh, I'll never get through that. So we, we picked the little pamphlet. I'll get through that. But don't be intimidated by that. This is to get through it. Make it a goal to get through it by the end of the year. Read a chapter a month. Read a page a day or something. But but work through it as he talks about the foundations of the Christian faith. And you're going to be forced to start addressing things that maybe you wouldn't address in your normal quiet times because you keep rounding the same things that you like about God. But there are other things, other facets about God that you can learn to enjoy because you haven't studied them yet. But You'll be turned on to those things by authors who address those things. So I commend this book to you um, so you can read it. I think that as we um, think about what it, what it takes to make a healthy church, I want to talk about outreach and I want to talk about children's ministry and I want to talk about how we do worship and I want to talk about um, discipleship, but we can't talk about those things unless we keep our foundation the foundation. And that's right teaching. There's such a thing as right teaching. And we measure that with the Word of God. Let me pray before we have our time of partaking in the Lord's Supper. Father, we ask that You would in this time Help those of us who want to pursue you but don't want to do the work it takes to be a real disciple. 
We don't want to read. We don't want to spend time in prayer. We don't want to, we don't want to do the disciplines that you've required of us to, to grow and to mature. The ways that we access your grace. We ask that you would give us the incentive that we need to, to start with the basics, to start with the foundations. And as we grow, we would begin to chip away the misunderstandings that we have about you and begin to have a more biblical understanding of who you are, what you're like, how you relate to us, what you expect of us, what salvation is all about, what worship should be in the home, at work, at church, what true discipleship is. We ask that you would allow us to not be satisfied with just coming to church and kind of knowing about you and then going out the rest of the week and just pick up where we left off next Sunday. But to pursue you, to be active about it, to investigate, to research, to look into your word and read it, meditate on it, and allow you to penetrate us with it and allow you to form our thoughts about you. And the things that we brought to the table that we thought about you that don't match Scripture, that you would give us the grace to put those things away. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to ask